This episode is brought to you by Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies, and the creatives that make them, not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside, you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary, and underappreciated films from filmmakers like you worldwide. And the best part is that it is completely free. So join today at www.bonsai.film. It takes just a few seconds. And once you sign up, you'll get the very next newsletter on Friday morning. It's that simple. Go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights, our biweekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives just like yourself. And don't worry, we'll never sell your information or spam you with a bunch of nonsense emails, just the bi-weekly film industry goodness you need. And if you ever tire of Indie Insights, simply unsubscribe. No gimmicks, no games. So go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights for free. listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hi guys, my name is Shabon Lin. I'm an actress and singer, and uh, you might know me from my recent single release called Enough for Love, and uh, maybe my short film that went into several international film festivals called Apart Together, and maybe a um, national commercial for Pan Express that I did several years ago. Um, and I'm, I'm working as an actress in Los Angeles, and I'm actually currently writing a script that I spent the past two years working on. Siobhan Lin, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Hi, Chris. Hey, hey. This is going to be fun. Yes, I, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm... I'm kind of pumped because it isn't often that I get to interview someone who actively has a film project and a music project out at the same time. Yeah. We do interview a lot of multi-hyphenate creatives, a lot of people who are great at music, great at film, but they're not actively pursuing both lanes at the same time. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So this will be, this will be fun. Plus, your background, I think the audience has so much to learn and be inspired by. So I can't wait to dig in, but let me go back a couple of steps and do my job here and give this audience a deeper sense of who you are. I'm going to read from your bio. And if you feel like you need to amend to anything, if you feel like anything is incorrect there, just let me know at the end. So I'll, I'll give it a shot. Siobhan Lynn is an award-winning actress, singer-songwriter, screenwriter, and founder 
co-editor of the book series New Wave Acting. Her powerful journey spans moving from, let me get this pronunciation right, Guangzhou, China, to the United States to study film and communications at UCLA when she was just 18 years old to becoming a multidimensional entertainment business talent. Siobhan started singing and dancing ballet at the age of nine. And by the age of 10, she was studying classical vocal training. In 2014, Siobhan made her film debut in the independent short False Awakening and later went on to star in other movies such as A Better World in 2015, Alibi in 2016, Good Night Butterfly, which is amazing, in 2017, Love Takes Five in 2017, and The Wandering Earth in 2019. The film Love Takes Five was shown on national television over 144 million times. For The Wandering Earth, Siobhan was cast for the highly coveted role of dubbing the English-speaking voice of the character Han Dua Dua. The Wandering Earth became China's fourth highest-earning film in its cinema history and the fourth highest-earning non-English film to date, earning $700 million at the box office worldwide. In addition, Siobhan has lent her voice to national commercials for Toyota, Panda Express, the aforementioned Panda Express, and more. Her most recent starring role was in the dramatic short film Apart Together in 2021. That was also tremendous. I've watched that several times, which saw Siobhan win eight Best Actress Awards, including the Independent Shorts Awards, the London Independent Film Awards, and the New York Indie Shorts Award. In 2020, Siobhan released her first single, the invigorating pop track, Love Me Later, which I've heard many, many times as well. Her current <laughs> music inspirations include Jasmine Sullivan, Pink Sweats, and her. That's not a bad list whatsoever. And up next, Siobhan is tracking a neo-soul and R&B-flavored EP, which includes her new single, as mentioned before, Enough for Love. Writing, uh, She's also writing a TV series, managing a calendar of busy acting auditions, and is signed on for several upcoming films wow that's a very detailed bio and yeah, yeah very complete yeah yeah and it's not even exhaustive you know i there were things that there were paragraphs that just i said you know i'll be reading for 10 minutes if if i read the whole thing so so I, even after cutting some out it's still very detailed but i'd love to kind of start way 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 back even before you began doing ballet and I'm just wondering mm. if you can talk about how life was growing up mm. in Guangzhou, uh, China. Yeah, so um, I I was born in 1994 <laughs> in Guangzhou, and um, I remember. Oh, okay. So let's go back. So I just remember that I loved singing ever since I. I probably can make sound, I think, because my mom is a um, music teacher, like mm -hmm. professor in college. And uh, she also went to music college as a vocal major. So um, I kind of grew up listening to her practicing, but, but she does like uh, classic, like Chinese classical music, which is, I think it's almost like, almost like, Chinese, oh, 
like Chinese opera kind of singing, so classical, um, but in the Chinese language, like instead of like Italian. Um, that's what I'm trying to kind of differentiate. Um, but yeah, so I grew up listening to her sing and um, grew up with a lot of just music in my environment. So I just I just remember loving singing. Um, and then, I, yeah, I started playing piano and uh, dancing ballet when I was very young. So just very musical, kind of grew up very musically. Um, yeah, and I've been, and, and I've, lived in Guangzhou um, until 18 when I um, came to the States for, for college. You mentioned your mom was a classical music teacher. I think that's incredible. And I think just to get some of the, the audience up to speed, some of our audience is going to know this, some won't, mm-hmm. but I want everybody to be up to speed. Guangzhou is the third largest city in China and mm-hmm. it's a metropolis. It's... yeah. You know, pretty affluent, generally speaking, for uh, considering sort of the mass that China has uh, in, in some of the smaller providences and, and farming towns. Oh, so I am yeah, curious. Uh, oh, go ahead. Area. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I just want to say, yes, Guangzhou, uh, for those who don't know, it's a very urban, like it's a really big city and I live in, just an urban area. I live. I actually live in the financial district, so it's just a very. I guess I. So I kind of grew up very much in the city, and that's what I actually fancy like country life now. Like it's just like yeah. I've always been attracted to uh, more of a country and rural life because I grew up in a very city life. Like I just very tall building around me, and I live in a tall building that kind of metropolis. Yeah, it's just a very urban area. What was being, you're in LA now. Yeah. How different is a metropolis there versus a metropolis here in in LA? Like, what are the differences between, because they're both big cities, they're both, you know, sort of giant places with financial districts and entertainment districts of their own and arts. Can you tell me, tell us some of the differences there? Yeah, I, I love this question because it, it it actually reminded me when I first landed, well, when I first got into like UCLA, like the surrounding area of UCLA, which is Westwood, right? So West LA. I just remember uh, seeing like much kind of, for me, shorter buildings than <laughs> I used to see growing up around my uh, like my family, my house, right? So I just remember feeling like, oh, this is almost like a suburb for me. And I think I, I think this is a common, um, this is a common feeling, like first impression um, that my peers, international student from China, felt as well because we discussed this um, in New Zealand. Just, re- just, just. For us um, from Beijing or Shanghai or Guangzhou or Shenzhen or Hong Kong, you know, they just LA just feels much, much like a suburb, like much, like kind of less busy, right? And then much more spread out as well. Mm-hmm. And then you don't see people walking on the streets very often. So it just, it felt very different. I almost felt a small town to us, really. That's amazing. Because we're used to seeing a lot of people walking on the streets and and a lot of the skyscrapers right around us 
Um, but I think, um, but I love LA because I love driving. And then, because I never, I actually never drove in Guangzhou. So <laughs> right. LA is the city where it's the first city that I was able to drive my car and explore the city. So that part I actually enjoyed. Yeah, because in Guangzhou, um, public transportation might actually work better than driving your own car because trend, like because traffic is really bad. Yeah, just to give people a sense of the size, it's got 14 million people in it. So it's one and a half times larger than New York City. So that's a lot of people in, in one space. But that's fascinating, that information. That's fascinating to know that, you know, coming from where you come from, L.A. is like a small place with smaller buildings. And it really is spread out. I've always thought it's like five cities in one. And if you yeah. ever do come to Nashville, I don't know if you've been to Nashville, but if you ever come to Nashville, I'm sure I, this will feel even more small, which will make you feel even more warm. I know, I know. And I know that a lot of my uh, the musician friends of mine are actually currently moving to Nashville from L.A. And mm -hmm. I, I, I always want to go, but I never went. If you decide to visit been. and scout it, let, let me know. I'll give you the key to the yes, city. Yes, yes. I would love to. Yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll hang out. Actually, I think um, Sakari Greenwell, who was one of the co-writers on Enough for yeah. Love. Yeah. She went right. Yeah. She went to Belmont University. Exactly. Yes. Right and here in she Nashville. Lived, yes. Uh, she lived in Nashville for a while. And I love Sakari. She's my she's my friend. I, I, I love her. Let her she's know very her, talented. her voice is unbelievable. I heard her album, her Mocha album, Let, and your voice is unbelievable as well, obviously, but we're having you on for that one half <laughs> for that reason, but she should know that she's doing uh, a, a wonderful thing with Mocha as, as well. What was, thank you. of course, what, what was life like with your parents? You mentioned your mom was a classical teacher was there a big expectation yeah. that you study music or was it that you study something else or like, what was that life like? Was it, was it creative or was it tense? Mm -hmm. Interesting. I love your question because um, it's actually kind of the opposite. Um, my mom really wanted to stop me from being musical. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and it kind of, it kind of falls into that stereotype of like how Chinese parents have high expectation, right, for their kids and they prefer certain occupations over others, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, like professors are good, doctors are good, lawyers are good, right? And unfortunately, I grew up kind of like that. Like it's, it's for me that yeah. was exactly the same. Um, and, but then, but then she, because I love singing and it was so obvious that I love singing, yeah. I just couldn't stop yeah. singing. Mm -hmm. So my mom was like, you know what, let's just put, like, just put you in classes, put you in like private training right and 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 just yeah just let you because I was a kid and it's it's good for kids to for her just even the general idea of having 
kids receive like musical education, right? Yeah. Doesn't harm too much. Like that's that's her perspective. Not not to like train me into a professional singer. That's really the last thing that she wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, and then because I was very like goody goody child, I I was really good in my like just schoolwork. Um, I, I've always kind kind of been the top of my class. So um, she, and for her, like someone who, and that's a strong stereotype, but for her, um, someone who becomes a singer or actress must be someone who's not good at their schoolwork. It's just like, if you're at top of the class, if you're good at um, your academics, then you should become like, just like lawyers, like the elite Right, still typical elite occupations instead of uh, being a entertainer, right? In, from her perspective. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So, <laughs> so I definitely grew up not uh, like my parents do not definitely do not want me to to become creatives or artists. Yeah. It's interesting because in Western culture we view artists as types of geniuses. And a lot of our best musicians are very studious. They always had the best grades and they were typically very, very good at math, which made them good at instruments and and made them good at specifically guitar, piano, et cetera. Uh, And so we really revere those artists as some of our most quality citizenry. So it is, it is interesting that dynamic. I've had a little (laughs) bit of a taste of it because my college roommate uh, was a Gujarat Indian and uh-huh. and one of my best friends, uh, his name is Tommy Zhao, and he was Chinese or is Chinese, and he wanted to be a reality TV star, and his dad uh-huh. said, "No, you're going to be a heart surgeon." And the way that uh-huh. the way that he uh, got over on his parents is that he went and did plastic surgery instead. He said, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, you thought I was going to be a heart surgeon? Wrong. I'm going to go do plastic surgery." So that's what he does right now. Uh, okay. And I assume he's very, very good at it. But I am curious, how did you convince your mom and dad? Uh, and I don't know what your father did, but uh, how did you convince them that this was the right path for you? First, can I just comment? Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of doing brain surgery, he chose plastic <laughs> surgery. That's such a... <laughs> Rebellious, an act of right, right? It's it's rebellious, but still fall into medical, and I love that. That's I right. That. That's right. He couldn't. He didn't have the courage it, to like completely go off the reservation. I know. Yeah. So it's within that range, right? Let's be a bit rebellious. I love that. He wasn't as brave um, as you, Siobhan. I, yeah. I was more of a rebel, right? Yes, absolutely. Oh, that's so funny. Um, well, what was the question about my dad? Right. Well, yeah, I was curious what, what he did and and how you convinced him and your mom to just go ahead and let you pursue entertainment and create in the creative life full time. Mm. So my dad works in, um, like how, like state owned enterprise. Mm -hmm. And then that's kind of a, a, maybe it's only a thing in China or some like, right. you know, like it's, it's not a thing in States, right? State owned enterprise. Right. And, um, and she, I, I don't, I don't 
actually think he had too much. Like he just wanted me to grow up happy and healthy. Yeah. So oh, awesome. my mom was the one who was <laughs> been more like critical on uh, my like life choices, right? right? Um, but to be honest, I just remember um, I wanted to switch my major to theater. Because I uh, eventually I minored in theater and major in communication studies, right? But in my junior year, I wanted to just switch to um, the, like theater and just just switch my major to theater instead of doing a minor. But my mom was so opposed to it that I cried. I just remember that phone call was so dramatic. Wow. I was outside. I was just outside John Wooden, our our like right. gym and UCLA. And I just remember sobbing and she was sobbing and she felt so, just so sad uh, knowing that I wanted to do theater. Wow. So I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to hurt her in a way because I, I, yeah, I, I've always had a really close relationship with my mom. So I just, I kind of didn't switch the major for her. Right. Yeah. So right. I only did my. Yeah. Right. And when you when this all pays off for you big time, then everything will be fine anyway. It always ends up being fine once the whole thing pays off. Right. It's um, I, you know, I don't even remember when she kind of accepted my my career choice to work as an actress. Right. Uh, I think it was just gradually. And yeah. then she kind of maybe saw that I was able to like book things and like, yeah, like she gradually accepted it, but there wasn't a point uh, in which that dramatic like conversation happened. And she said that I accept you like now, I now accept your, um, and I agree with your uh, career choice as an actress. No, just gradually. She, yeah. yeah, it's probably not going to happen. It's probably not going to be definitive, right? Um, I am curious. This audience is global, and they could be listening from anywhere on the globe and wanting to do mm-hmm. just what you did and come over here and go to UCLA, which is maybe a top, easily a top 50 school in the U.S., if not top 30. What is the process for <laughs> immigrating from China to the U.S.? What process did you go through? Oh, um, I, I don't, I, I won't necessarily use the word immigrating really because oh, okay. I, I apologize. No, 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 it's okay. Because, uh, because I only thought of myself as going to what well, kind of receiving college education mm. in the States. And, um, that's just something that I always wanted to do. So that's something that I thought that I kind of planned oh, wow. since middle school. Like I just knew that oh for college education I'll be I'll be attending a, a US college. Um so I took the SAT and Do you remember what you got? Oh and TOEFL. SAT? Yeah. Like it's so it was I think it oh, 2180. Holy shit. And <laughs> it, because it was 24. Yeah. No, but I wasn't I it wasn't that good, really. But for, for my for my like to, like from the Asian Chinese <laughs> standard, 
Yeah, that's but, hilarious. Um, but I kind of, yeah, so I just took the SAT and I, I didn't go to international school, actually. I just went to a uh, kind of a top public school. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I had to learn, like, I, I had to prep for SAT myself and then prep for TOEFL myself. Maybe went to kind of a, like, workshop, but mostly work on it myself and then uh, submitted the applications. Mm-hmm. So just like a very conventional applying for college procedure. Yeah. Yeah. As an international student. How did you have the idea to go to college in the U.S. in middle school? What was, and did you, and was it always was actually, UCLA or was it Harvard or Berkeley or was it somewhere else? <laughs> oh, I like that question because, uh, well, firstly, the, the decision that I, decision to go to U.S. for college education was very simple because I knew that U.S. Um, has the, the best college, mm-hmm. colleges in the world, well, at least from my knowledge and perspective, right? It can be subjective. <laughs> um, so, so I wanted to go to the best colleges. Yeah, that's it. That's like I want to be in the top colleges. Um, and also, oh, and also I, I watch, I think like many people around the world, I watch, I grew up watching Hollywood films, grew up listening to, uh, musicians, right. Artists from mm-hmm. the States. I grew up just listening. I just ex- like, I was exposed to the American pop culture since I was a little kid. Oh, wow. So I, you know, like, like I said, like many people around the world, I think that uh, at least from my era, right. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's the same now, but uh, at least from my era, a lot of people fancy going to the States and going to the U S colleges. Yeah. So, yeah, so that, that was that. And um, no, UCLA wasn't my first choice. And I, I always wanted to go to private school, mm-hmm. but unfortunately um, I got waylisted several schools and my best choice was UCLA. <laughs> what, were, what were some of the schools you applied to that you got waylisted on? I applied to most of the Ivy and oh. several um, several liberal arts college. Okay. If you're familiar with, like, um, I applied to Will. I applied to Williams and uh, Wellesley, and I was waitlisted for Wellesley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really wanted to go to Wellesley. Yeah, Wellesley's great. Williams is great. Uh, but, but hey. UCLA is fantastic <laughs> as well. And you ended up in California. Oh, I, loved, I, I loved it there. And I, I, I wouldn't go on this path of becoming an artist if I, if I, if I wasn't in LA, like I, if I didn't go to LA. Oh, that's college, fascinating. For sure. Yeah. That's, that, that's actually I'm really grateful. interesting. I'm grateful for that. Yeah. For so sure. I'm actually grateful for that, for that. So your process was just as simple as applying for colleges, seeing who, would uh, accept you in and heading to that college it was just that simple you didn't have any issue with travel or any uh extra work you had to do to to get over to us ucla no no it was just a very conventional in, international school uh, international student path like it was a very conventional path as any international student and apparently because i 
um, applied for like more than 20 schools. Mm-hmm. So I know that like, I kind of, I, I, I know that at least one of the school will accept me. So I kind of, you know, how people would select yeah. schools at different tiers and you know that, oh, you might be, you might at least be qualified for this school. So there's yeah. like safety net. Like I definitely was um, like, it was a very like, once again, conventional and complete procedure for any, just like any international international school uh, student who applied for U.S. college. Very, very good. Yeah, play the numbers game. Yeah, you know, for me, I applied to one college and if they didn't let me in, then I... <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was in big trouble, but but uh, they let me in. They, I, I did what it took. Uh, you started your creative life in ballet, as I mentioned before, at age nine. Do you still practice uh, ballet? I would say that I started um, in piano because I started playing piano at like four. Oh, so wow. that's really? very young. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I my my yeah. Um, but I am not currently dancing ballet, um, but I still love dancing. And I, to be honest, my ballet years were, <laughs> I didn't like ballet as much as I liked like street dance or mm-hmm. like, you know, like, like uh, pop dance um, right. that I kind of, this on my own because ballet is very rigorous and you have to do a lot of the exercise repetitively right it's mm-hmm. just like for me it got boring uh, yeah so I didn't like ballet as much but I love that ballet prepped me for the necessary dance like foundation for dancing yeah and the yeah. discipline did you, just, did you like the movie Black Swan Oh yes, I love it. Yeah. Yes, but but you know, it's not necessarily about ballet, anyways, right? Yeah, that's true. So. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's yeah. a, a ballet is just the uh, vehicle to give you the story about, exactly. yeah, yeah. You know what exactly. it, what people demand of themselves, uh, yeah. from art and and otherwise. How did you get involved uh, and get on Olivia Hangzhou's radar? Because I want to, I want to transition here into your film a little bit and, and film life. Yeah. So for the audience, Olivia Hong, uh, Hangzhou was the writer director of A Part Together, your award winning short film. Very, very moving. It's about a uh, Chinese woman and her daughter uh, seeking to find a lost, uh, a long lost daughter. Uh, that that she had to give up for adoption due to the one child policy in China, which you also grew up under, I believe. Yes. So uh, how did you, how did you get on Olivia's radar? Um, Just like any actresses audition. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, so the casting director that she uh, worked with, um, Michael Sanford, Mm -hmm. booked me before for, um, oh, actually for Goodnight Butterfly. Oh, got it. Yeah. Then, uh, so he remembered me and I auditioned and yeah. And then, <laughs> then she chose me. Perfect. So, <laughs> so it was just about winning in the audition. What do you, yeah. just for this audience again, uh, we try to get 
into some of the tools and tactics. And I think this is an appropriate time to sort of dig in here. Was there anything you did in the audition room that stands out as a a winning behavior as the reason why you got the part? It's a good question that I don't have any answer to. You just went in there and read the lines. Exactly. Yeah. Like, and then I, I I think for me or for I assume many actors out here or maybe just around the world, we, well, at least for me, I kind of see audition as my as my job instead of a pre stage to my job. I think that that's interesting. Um, yeah, audition. Yeah is my job um at least for the stage that, that i'm in now so it just really if i when i get an audition i just prep for it might try my best to prep for it and then perform in the audition room i think doing a read and doing an audition yeah. is really powerful i love that you put it that way that it's your job i've met a lot of independent actors that will not read yeah. or will not audition unless it's for a studio film. And they're almost oh, insulted that you would ask them to audition or read if you're local yeah. to a town or local to a place or you're an independent filmmaker. But I don't think that's great because I think you need the repetition. You need the practice so that when that studio film does call you, you're, you know, you're ready to go. Um, I, I think that, um, how do I put this? I, I, um, <laughs> I try my best not to have the ego mm-hmm. as, um, uh, how do I put this? It's quite sensitive. Because I don't want to judge the actors who do not want to audition. It's okay, judge well, well, them. Let, let, <laughs> <laughs> let me put it this way. Yeah. I, I do see the process of audition a different a different thing from when you actually perform or, or like act for your role i think they're just two independent things and i respect the process of audition and i do i am someone who believes in the process of audition and i do think that audition itself it's also a good kind of exercise for new, like young actors as well, because because well, apparently for most people, for most actors, you're gonna get rejected more than you're gonna get booked, right? Mm-hmm. Even that process, it's a good mental game to prep you for the potential fame or like potential vanity that you're going to face. So I I love this humbling process, even just, just mentally, I love this process. And also the technical stuff, right? The Whether it's co-reading or like uh, co-reading for certain commercials or like prep audition for theatrical, these are just good acting exercise anyways. And I love that uh we're we're able to we're able we're able to train ourselves into the craft gradually by the 
process of auditioning instead of just jumping into jumping on in front of the camera or jumping on the stage yeah. before this stage. I like kind of see it as a must go through stage for actors. Yeah. And I, I, I don't like, you know, I, I want to embrace it. And I, I do respect the process of audition of audition. I know that somebody, a lot of people don't. And a lot, a lot of people actually don't like the idea of auditioning. And I, even some directors or filmmakers I know who don't really think the process of audition really work. I, I understand that there are different opinions around this, surrounding this topic, but I am someone who believes in the process of, of auditioning. Yeah, that's really well said. And look, the people I know that don't like it, it's not like I don't like them because of it. They, they're still buddies. They're still friends. I still respect their craft and what they do. I just think they're wrong about this, this one mm-hmm. thing. Um, when you read the script, what was it about the story for a part together yeah. that jumped out at you? What was it that made you think that uh, you'd do a great job in the role? Yeah, um, actually, exactly like you just said before, I grew up in the era of child one child policy, right? Mm-hmm. Because now it's a it's in the past. Because right now, currently, China is not under one child policy, right? Right. Um, so very recent change, but right now it's 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 a history. It's in the history. So I am one of the kids growing up under one child policy, and I unfortunately experienced son preference. Uh, which which means that uh, parents prefer son over daughter right. kind of situation. So son preference, right? So I experienced some preference environments um, when I when I when I met with my relatives who I I maybe met once a year or something like that, right? I heard them talk about. Like I heard them persuading my parents to get a son. Um, oh wow! And just yeah, like I grew up just hearing those discussions. Um, so I do have um, maybe trauma, um, but at least bad experience, uh, emotional experience with some preference. And I've like I think most most people my generation in China have heard at least ha- at least have heard if not experienced um, parents needing to give up child uh, because of the one child policy yeah just some heartbreaking stories so though so this topic is very familiar to me mm-hmm. and I'm happy that Olivia, or you know, just a young filmmaker who want to make a film about this theme, and that I think the way that Olivia approaches this theme, right, uh, for me, is not overly dramatic. It's not. Um, it just. It, I, I like her way of approaching the theme because it, it is a very sensitive topic and it can be 
easily turn into kind of a melodrama kind of kind of situation and I love how she wrote the story yeah I agree with that she wrote it so straight that that was, I think it was really needed to there's no reason to get political about it there was no reason to add exactly. any extra yeah. wrinkles exactly. Just yeah. write that thing straight from the mother's perspective. And that's what she was able yeah. to pull off. And it allowed your performance yeah. and um, um, uh, Leanne Lee's performance to, to, to jump you know, off the screen. I really enjoyed the short. I noticed that the short's themes deal with sort of circumstantial separation and mm-hmm. unrequited love. But so do your songs. So Enough for Love and uh, some of your other tracks that you've released that sort of are just on YouTube floating around, by the way. Uh, it seems to be, <laughs> yeah, it seems to be a theme that, that you that you like. Is the topic of unrequited love and, and, and circumstantial separation close to your heart? I know Enough for Love's lyrics deal with that too. Hmm, interesting. Ooh, now do you put it like this? I actually never thought of a kind of scene from a, a distance and see, yeah. oh, there's a common theme that I... Uh, but I think that even... Just I, personally, I am attracted to the... I think there's beauty in incomplete or like imperfection, incomplete... Stories. Mm-hmm. I love. I, yeah, I. I'm someone who's attracted to non-happy ending, but not necessarily like tragic ending, but just something that is imperfect, and so so that there's room for like emotional lingering. I don't know if I, mm-hmm. I'm telling this in if if any of this makes sense, but I am attracted to the beauty of a imperfect or like incomplete story that doesn't necessarily have a happy ending but doesn't necessarily need to be overly sad or tragic um i think there's like nuances in between a happy ending a and a a tragic ending and i am personally attracted to that as an artist you're a woman of my own heart because i feel the same way i did a lot of that in my songwriting and you know i'm guilty of being just you know, a terrible person sometimes because back when I was in music and songwriting, I found that it was really important for me to get into relationships just so I could get out of them. And then I would have songs Uh, there to write, which isn't awesome, uh, but I I am, I am admitting it. I'm (laughs) confessing to that. And there was a great line by Billy Corgan, who's the front man for the smashing pumpkins uh, in one of his songs Mm. where he says, I'm in love with my sadness. And that always stuck with me because I found I was a lot more creative when I was in that sort of heartbroken state. I could emote freely then. And it was always more difficult for me to emote freely in a way that was artful uh, when I wasn't in that state. And it wasn't for years until I figured out that, you know, that is a formula uh, that I can't sustain. So I have to learn how to be a good writer when I don't want to write. I have to learn how to be a good writer when I'm happy. I have to learn how to be a good writer when I'm rushed. You know, what does that look like for, you know, for, for me? And that's what I had to figure out. But the idea of unrequited love is one of my favorite topics and it jumped out to me uh, with your work. So I had to ask you about it. 
Thank you. And I think that uh, what you just said also is the classic kind of, it's the classic topic, right? Uh, that classic question, if an artist need to experience mm-hmm. what he or she creates, right? Is that experience necessary? Or, you know, it's a classic, um, it's a classic um, acting thing too, right? Yeah. Do you have to experience that experience that your character is 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 going through in order to do a good job right um it's a good part of big part of method acting i no i'm gonna say my answer is is no for me okay Uh, but also i think because i'm someone who who imagines a lot like i i am able to just by imagining the circumstance and under, just by imagining the circumstances of my characters to get into the emotional state. Mm. Um, and I believe it's a healthier way anyway, um, because I know that I am a sensitive person. I want to protect, I kind of, yeah, I kind of want to protect myself. Uh, so I, I, oftentimes need to have a conscious make a conscious decision to stay distance mm-hmm. um from my character oh, wow. uh, but i do believe that yeah but i do believe that simply by using the techniques in imagination you can get to the authenticity of your character's state of mind you don't necessarily need to experience it but but I'm a fan of Stella Adler and maybe that's why, but I'm just more prone, prone into that um, acting style. Thank you for that. That's very, very interesting. I love this idea of using imagination to drive those emotions so that you are personally protected from your own yeah. real loss, your own real emotion. That's, that's really powerful. Can, can I read a quote of yours back to you? Sure. <laughs> uh, you, you were quoted as saying, I can't really be alive without writing and singing, and I mean it. Yeah. Uh, do you see your mm-hmm. career continuing on both paths of music and acting, or do you foresee yourself leaning more towards acting or music in the future? So the short answer to that is uh, is both. But I don't really separate singing and acting. Mm. I, I know that technique-wise, right, training-wise, craft-wise, they're very different. But for me, they're just different forms of self-expression. And when I said I can't really be alive when I, if I don't write or sing, it's just a honest confession to make. Um, and it was a recent one. I just, I, I started to really accept myself and, and know that I am someone who needs to express um, and needs to, it just, I don't, uh, how do I put it? I think my words are so limited. It's just like, if I, if I lose if I lose a way to express myself, then it's just hard for me to live. Right. 
Yeah. You don't want that taken away. It's very hard for non-creatives to even understand, I think at times what it means, but, and, and here's what I've figured out over the years is that for creative, and here's a great example recently, Kanye West, right? Like he is best understood through his music and least understood when he speaks. So that's why his music is so powerful. And when he speaks, he gets in trouble. And I think a lot of creatives are like that, maybe not to the extremes of Kanye West, but we are misunderstood when we talk and we are better understood when we create. Oh, that's very interesting. Well, because for me, Kanye, from my own personal perspective, I just thought it's more of a mental health issue. <laughs> and I think that... It could be as well. And, but, but also, I like how you put it, because um, similarly for me, I do feel more comfortable... Hmm, this is how I would say it hiding behind my creative work and talk to the world in that way instead of instead of instead of just like I don't know like just expressing in in words like I'm much more comfortable expressing indirectly behind my work and I, I yes so so I think it's very similar to what you just said but Putting that on Kanye was very interesting. I, I didn't. Yeah, because he's been talking like this for as long as he's been a star. It's just that we're in a different zeitgeist right now. So it just comes off different. So he's never been a great communicator through his words, in my opinion, unless he's rapping those words. Uh, here's a very zeitgeisty question for you. Something very spirit of the times. What is your opinion on appropriation in film? Um we we recently talked about a filmmaker documentarian named Meg Smaker, who is a white woman, former firefighter, now documentarian, who made a movie about Middle Eastern men that had uh, been released from Guantanamo. What what are you your feelings about let's say a white man or woman making a movie about Chinese people or Chinese people making a movie about the black community yeah. is should we all be free to make what we want to make? Or do you think there are rules around that? Uh, are you familiar with the film Nomad Land? Of course. I love Nomad uh, Land and Joey Chow. Yeah. And do you think that's that falls into this appropriation film? I think that it falls into it for some people. For me, I thought, I think the work speaks for it. Right. So Exactly. At, at so, my at my company, we get hundreds of screenplays a year and pitches, mm, and we've mm. seen some real dreck come across our inboxes, where it's like, oh, that maybe you should write what you know because you're being uh, you're being offensive now. Like there was a script uh, we all reviewed recently that was so ham fisted and so just felt outdated and. And I actually recommended that the filmmaker not make it like it would hurt their career if they made this movie because because they had the completely wrong take on an issue. But then when you look at Nomadland, you're seeing a masterpiece. So who cares who made it? Yeah, exactly. So I think that that my answer to that question 
just like what you just said about Nomadland, I think it's more about the work itself and whether that work is authentic and less about the labeling, the identity of the filmmaker. Because regardless, right, of, of your cultural background or your race, right, the, I don't know, the, the, the pigment of your, yeah. <laughs> your body, right, <laughs> um, one can come to understand another culture um, deeply. And that's, that's because we are human beings. We are intelligent creatures. So, so yeah, so, so really my, I think it's whether the work itself is authentic, right? And apparently if the work itself is not authentic and plus the condition that it's made by um, people from another very different culture, then it kind of fall into that appropriate appropriation film. But if the work is authentic and you can see that the filmmaker or the writer really know what they're writing or, or, or making, then then it shouldn't be like I don't think that the let's just I don't think the the race or like the cultural identity of um, an artist should disqualify them for making films that are about other culture, country, or like. Can I share a wait. concept with you? Yeah. So I have this concept and I call it the, the post-racial period. And the post-racial mm. period is this moment that happens probably in the next 10 years where the, mm -hmm. the uh, ubiquity and cost of CRISPR and DNA technology plummets, where mm. every single person just gets their DNA map just for going to the doctor for a cold, mm. and it's free, because mm. it's just part of general health care. Mm. Um, when, when, when the CRISPR technology sort of dovetails with affordability and, and, and being part of common healthcare, people will then find out whether they like it or not, that they're mixed up with all sorts of stuff. Mixed. I was going to say that. And yeah. they, can't, they can no longer like say they don't like a certain group or a certain race anymore because people don't like to be uh, uh, hypocrites mm -hmm. and they don't like to contradict themselves. Right. Yeah. If they don't like to reject a part of them. Or right. themselves, exactly. And so for me, yeah. I know I'm French. I know I'm German. I know I'm from the Senegal and the Congo. I've got a little bit of Ashkenazi Jew in me. I've got a little Native American, some some um, some Eastern oh. some Eastern Asia. So I'm all over the place. So you know, I have really, those, I really do. And so I have no space to, <laughs> like to hate everything. anyone, right? I'm 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 already in that post racial mindset, Siobhan. Yeah. No, I, 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 I agree. And I think that I, I like how I, I, you know, when you, when you said post-racial period, I thought of, cause post-modern we just ditched the labels. Right. right so right. I, I understood what you were going to say, but I didn't know that it was going to approach it from the medical cost, a technology yeah. point of view. And that's interesting. Yeah. And I, I think it would be a very beautiful, beautiful thing if that's, that's, what's going to happen. And I think it, it, it really is going to happen that way. 
Yeah. I do too. Once everybody has it, then we'll have to find something else to fight about. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you did the English dubbing of the Chinese film, the film, the wandering earth. So we talked about that in your bio uh, and how yeah. well it did. Just, so just to remind the audience, this movie did $700 million of box office and it's the fourth largest grossing film in, in the history of China. And you did the mm-hmm. English dubbing for the whole thing. What is the difference? Because I know you've talked about and you said, hey, dubbing is acting. So how <laughs> is dubbing different than, let's say, normal acting? And and how would you teach someone in our audience mm. how to approach dubbing as an actor? Mm. Um, so the experience of dubbing for a, a existing, existing film right Mm -hmm. because uh, the process of this is that the film has been completed and then it was acquired by netflix and then the netflix and then netflix needed a english version right Right. um so it's it's almost recreating a part of a character that already was played by another actress and it's mostly and well it's almost entirely just on the voice and and so for me i don't see it as necessarily just kind of translating or like just 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 copy the original actress who played the role i think that what well, it's it's actually similar to my process of translating the books that i that I translated, right? It's it's when you translate, when you dub um, other, like when you dub other people's performances, inevitably you're you're recreating, you're kind of collab- collaborating with uh, I see what you the mean, existing yeah. performance. Yeah. So, um, and I know that um, I definitely brought some of my own interpretation to my dubbing too so it's it's i know that i'm gonna accept that it's not gonna be completely uh complete like it's not gonna be the exact same thing as the chinese original um lines and the lines even are different because because there's no there's no like no different languages have their own like styles and characteristics as well so even translating even the language itself has its own characteristic so yeah so it's that and i think that for dubbing but dubbing itself really is the form of art and 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 voiceover right and and there are many workshops at least in in la that train professional dubbing actors Mm -hmm. so i do think that if dubbing is something that um you're really interested then attend workshop or like read books about dubbing techniques because in this world there are several categories as well it's just like it's it's a big world of its own dubbing voiceover that's very helpful and i'm thinking about your time at ucla and the fact Mm -hmm. that you are this sort of dual threat singer actor and i know at ucla you did experimental musicals so 
first, what is an experimental <laughs> yeah. musical? And then second, do you think maybe that's a path for you that you haven't explored yet is just being in musicals where you can act and sing? Yeah, that's 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 interesting because um Okay, so first experimental musical. <laughs> um, okay, so so um, the labeling experimental musical apparently is is saying that it's unconventional, right? It's not a conventional um, story, and then you make it into musical. It, it's 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 different, and it might be weird for act like for 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 audience, and it might be hard to understand it's just like it's and then some parts of the musical might be intentionally triggering or something like it's just not a conventional uh you know sometimes maybe like you know even sometimes breaking the fourth wall right Uh, breaking the the fourth wall it's just like a not non-conventional musical experience and but there are so many ways, right, to do a musical non-conventionally. <laughs> so, right. so I don't know um, how I can describe an experimental musical in a more specific way. I'm picturing and the office that, just with music. Oh. You know, where they can break yeah. the fourth wall and turn to the camera and say, you know, Dwight's yeah, Median exactly. or something. Yeah. yeah. But just to music. Yes, I think that that's a good. That's maybe a good material to make into experimental. <laughs> Somebody musical. should do that. Yeah. So, and yeah, and then the one that I did in UCLA um, was a full student production, but it was a very good one. So mm-hmm. um, it was a very high quality student production, and then it was kind of a UCLA USC thing because uh, we needed to find talents from the LA area to make that happen. And so that people mostly, and the actors are mostly UCLA and USC students mm-hmm. and the, um, the crew are also from both schools. So we, we kind of at that time called it a UCLA USC co-production on that one. And, um, and that's a really, and, and, that musical was was written by very famous playwrights in China called Meng Jinghui, yeah. and um, and he is he writes experimental musical, meaning he writes different kind of weird musical. And for that one, even when I play that character, sometimes I don't understand why I set certain lines and why the lyrics in the songs are like that it can be very random yeah, yeah but yeah. but yeah but it's I, I guess it's the vision of the writer director Meng Jinghui and uh yeah actors might not understand it right <laughs> from a like from a logic point of view but if you embrace it and just have fun with it yeah and for you are you thinking about auditioning for some musicals I, mean, I think it suits you because it combines acting and and singing, of course, right? Yeah. Um, how do I put it? Um, you know, I had fun working on musical, and I actually 
pre-pandemic, pre-COVID, the year 2019, and it was September, I did go back to China. Um, like my first projects after signing with my current management in China was a musical. Mm. And and I did a workshop for a month, sort of rehearsal workshop for the month. And then COVID happened. So the tour got canceled. Oh. And, and I, I had so much fun in the rehearsals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love, you know, I, the, I think the one thing that I loved the most might be to have a ensemble. I always love that experience uh, to do it as an ensemble because that's kind of what I, how I started um, in UCLA, right? Uh, in the- theatrical class, we also, we always emphasize the concept of uh, ensemble and then interacting, listening, accepting, um, pay attention to your uh, ensemble uh, members. It's just, I love that group working environment. Um, but then also I want to point out that I think musical is not simply combining singing and acting because musical has a particular way of singing style, Yeah. right? Um, the singing for a musical is very differently from singing for like pop music or soul music, like it's just different. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different style. And at this stage of my uh, interest, singing-wise, I I do want to make more of a neo soul R and B style of music. Mm -hmm. That's what I am currently most interested in. So, musical style of singing, it's just not something that I am particularly interested in. Right, like you need a new. uh, Lady Marmalade kind of musical to come out so you can use your use your um, use your style a little bit. I do want let's let's dig into your music a little bit. I know uh, before we get into the EP you're about to release, you did some music recording in South Korea and Seoul. I've heard of other artists doing that, including like Boys to Men. Uh, if you're familiar oh, really? with Boys to Men, in Seoul. Yeah, of course. Um, what oh, advantages are there? That. Yeah, I think they did Japan and Seoul and Seoul, uh, Korea, South Korea, uh, in the past, like in Wait, 2014, like, 2015. For production or for tour? Oh, for singing. They recorded that they have an entire album that was made in Japan, for example. And I know for sure they recorded songs in Seoul, Korea, and um, produced albums for artists in Japan and in Seoul, the, Korea. The markets, yeah, interesting. So oh. I was curious for, from your perspective, is there something we don't know? Is there an advantage to recording there? Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> so, uh, okay, let me just... Ref- so, okay, so uh, what, what happened was um, my... I had an investor for my my uh that album that ep that i actually haven't released (laughs) at that time and then um his vision or his company's vision for me 
was to do EDM music. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And at that time of my uh, career, of my journey, I wanted to listen to other people's, like, I want to, like, I, 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 I didn't, I didn't dare, I wasn't, I didn't dare to make decision about my creatives, like, like my career. I had to listen to people and I thought I had, to, I thought I had to. Right. So that was his vision and his team's vision to, to do EDM. And uh, they, and they want to do Chinese version and English version. And apparently uh, K-pop Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, K-pop was was already very, very, very strong Still at that is. time. Yeah, it, it's stronger. It's stronger and stronger. But even at that time, it was very strong already, and it was just like three three years ago, right? And so that um, he he wanted to. My investor wanted to have the best producer mm-hmm. to make um, the Chinese version because. For us, we thought that if we can get a top Korean producer to do the Chinese track, then it, it has the taste of, a, I think, an Asian mm-hmm. taste, but also better production than maybe someone would find in China. And that's why we chose that. And we kind of want to experiment with that too. Um, how would a U.S. production different from the Korean production. And we actually did make the, uh, if you listen to Love Me Later, the Chinese version and the English version, Mm -hmm. the entire production, so the English version was was done entirely in the States and by American producer, mixer, and uh, the mastering, like everything was done in the States. And the, the Chinese version was entirely done in Korea. And you can actually hear how the mixing is completely different. Yeah, it's and fascinating. Even production itself. And if you just listen to it closely, because I know that you're a musician, they're very different. And we, yeah, we just have fun and we want to see how that's going to be different. So we're just a bunch of kids who want to try that out, kind of, yeah. And. Love Me Later is Siobhan's uh, first single. Well, I don't know if it's first. You did a song, uh, you, you did a feature on a song too that came out right around the same time, but it might be the first single that we might have known for you, uh, from you. So I just want to contextualize that for the audience. Um, what can we expect from this upcoming EP? I know the single Enough for Love is out now. Uh, Mm-hmm. Written or co-written by yourself, uh, Sakari Greenwell, Jay Locke produced it. You can get on Apple Music, Spotify, everywhere. The EP's coming. What's it going to be named? How many songs going to be on it? What What can you tell us about the flavor of this thing? Yeah, so this is a, a very personal project of mine. And it's entirely kind of curated by my vision like every so I basically want to just I I don't want to care about what other people think I want to care about uh oh if this style suits me it's I don't want to I kind of want to throw away all of those 
voices from mm-hmm. from outside of myself. I, I just wanted to be completely free and and just 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 do it. So so it has so the EP covers topics that I am currently personally very interested in, and it might include some social critique pieces mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and you might include some personal you know like experience um you know my experience with my depression and uh enough for love is it's about you know unrequired love that i experienced mm-hmm. so just very personal and it draws from my emotional life uh, personal emotional life and also my what my mind is thinking right now. So it covers social critics pieces because I, I kind of care about some social topics. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, yeah, and covers some, some topics that is really, is very relevant to young people in China and the psychology of that. Ooh, exciting. When do you expect it to drop? I really have no idea because I'm still working on it. And, and yeah, I'm still working on it. I have no idea. But I, I my my Chinese management has been asking me that as well. Like just I, I have no idea, but I I I do want to take time with it. Yeah. Don't yeah. don't don't let it out because someone says it has to be out or you think it has to be out. Let it out when it's great. When it reflects your values, yes, your I brand. Mean, thank you. Because I mean, I, for me, it's just it's already a very personal project. I'm already not caring about a lot of things. So let's <laughs> yeah. just, let me just take my time. You know, just <laughs> got it. Well, you know, I look forward to that, and hopefully, I'll get some uh, you know inside tracks text to me or something, so I can just oh, listen yeah. to them in advance. Give you some feedback okay. if you'll take it. Okay. <laughs> yes, I'll do it. I'll I'm do kidding, that. but if you want to do it, I'm totally open to it. Um, I love, I yeah. love stuff like that. Oh, Siobhan, what are the two best pieces of advice you've received in your career so far, and who did they come from? Mm. Um, let me think. Um, two. Two pieces of advice. Oh. We'll take one if we you know, if we I, lose the two lot of yeah, here. We can. I, I, just don't, I, I just don't have a very uh, specific, once again, dramatic moment yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of, of like enlightenment, you know? Um, but I really think. Uh, I really think the the message itself once once again it's, it it might sound cliche really because it's a it's kind of a thing that people say just be yourself. It's once again it's very cliche and for the longest time I did not understand what it what it meant and I thought it was just this cliche of this like Instagram poster that kind yeah, of yeah, thing. Yeah. But really platitude. But really um be yourself, embrace your 
imperfection, embrace your experience and accept yourself for who you are right now and your past. It's just that state of loving yourself, accept yourself and be honest with yourself. That's very powerful. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, that to me is one of the most powerful um, feeling in the world. And I don't, and I don't mean that I, I am in contact with that feeling all the time. I, I, I still, I'm still aware that there are many moments when I don't like myself, reject my, uh, reject a part of me, even hate on a part of myself. But I would love to go more and more towards that, like that path when I can one day, or I don't know, uh, say that, oh, I am becoming more and more of myself. I am becoming more and more of myself yeah that's really what I'm trying to say um I I, I don't know if there's gonna be a once again a dramatic moment of oh finally I am fully myself or is is that even a a, a real thing but but I want to work on achieving that that's yeah. beautiful just really accepting parts of myself that I know currently I'm still rejecting yeah. And even hate sometimes. You no, know, it, it it can be simple things like I don't like a part of my body, or I don't like a part of my my eyes, my nose. And it can be um, a more abstract things like I don't like my temperament. I don't like some of my attitude toward things like that. Yeah, yeah it's beautifully put. It's good advice for anyone to to take. Um, which creatives do you admire? most and want to mm. emulate and what do they do from a technical or skill standpoint in your mind that sets them apart mm. um so so uh so currently and i can only say currently because i i think i'm currently i'm, I'm forever changing right, right sure but currently I am learning a lot from uh, musically. I'm, I am learning a lot from Jasmine Sullivan. Mm -hmm. Just her her techniques first, uh, and, and and most people know that you know her runs, her singing, really really good. But also just her the rawness of the emotions in her voice. That's something that I've. I've longed for because I grew up singing classical. So I have this very stubborn concept about when you sing, you have to sing beautifully. Mm -hmm. So I am attracted to very raw kind of singing, raw emotional singing. And that's what I am hearing from Jasmine Sullivan, despite the techniques that she has, she still managed to, deliver that raw emotions through her voice and she's she's brave enough to break sometimes she's brave enough to add those different kinds of textures in her voice that i did not dare to think is possible <laughs> right because 
not beautiful from a more like conventional classical point of view. So I uh, I am learning a lot from Jasmine Sullivan uh, musically, vocally, and um, and really I, I think uh, filmmaking wise, I love Zhao Ting Zhao's journey, mm-hmm. and I like that. Just like we discussed, she's there to like step out of the box and just just write music, uh, write stories, direct stories that are very different from her own surroundings and cultural background. And that's something that I think it's so brave, especially in the current age that yeah. we're in, right? So yes, she's definitely someone that I uh, really admire. Um, and writer-wise, I really um, yeah, I, I really like Mehmet. Mm. So just the classic. It just I I kind of like his attitude too. So yeah. I, I want to be because like I've always been a goody goody girl. So I kind of want. I am this. I am in this path to be more rebellious and more yeah. um, assertive of my voice. So mm-hmm. he's someone that I am it's, it's definitely look up to and inspired by. Yeah. I, love and this, I love this list. And I, I have to tell you that there is no one after, let's say, 130 or 40 interviews that has ever given us that list before. So kudos to you oh, really? on, that, on the most <laughs> original creatives list in Make It Podcast oh, history. Really? Uh, what oh, would you I say? thought those were classic choices. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, they are, but at the same time, they're they're also like not uh, Aaron Sorkin, Brad Pitt, Quentin Tarantino. Uh-huh. You know, people we get all the time. So they are, and then at the same time, Siobhan, they're they're not. So kudos, okay, kudos to you. But those choices are like explicitly. And specifically, Siobhan Lynn, though, those make perfect sense for you, for you to say. So I think that's awesome. Um, what do you, speaking of bravery, what do you think are your greatest greatest strengths and weaknesses? You, it can be creative or otherwise. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, to be honest, the first thing that popped into my head of, of, of strength it is also something that I've been thinking because we are in this and I'm going to be kind of grand about this. So um, I, I think that I, okay. So there's one thing that I believe in. I believe that artists have ugh, not responsibility, but I am someone who want to carry the responsibility of reflecting the time that we're in. Mm-hmm. So I am, I, I don't believe that all of the artists should do this, but I do think that I want to be an artist who reflect the time they're in. And I think my strength kind of apparently now in this critical time, right, in this U.S.-China relations, um, the world being so divisive and almost almost in the brim of uh, World War Three, you know, like in this very increasingly divisive world and especially with us china being the key players right now i think my strength 
realistically is that I kind of have uh, experience and insights about both culture and society. Mm-hmm. And I want to be a voice of, I don't know if it's neutral, but it's be a voice of, I, I want to come from a more like understanding, neutral, soft point of view Mm-hmm. to help both sides understand each other. Yeah. And I know in order to do that, one has to have the nuances to navigate. Like, it's just really hard to navigate. And that's why I have taken the time on the script that I'm currently working on that I think won't stay in that lane of of theme um so yeah so i think that's my strength because realistically i grew up in china and i spent uh, almost 10 years in the states right now and i actively think about this subject and i actively read about this so i am someone who may have deeper understand than most people and i would love to be a voice of that of like almost connecting two worlds and help both sides understand each other even politically like and i'm talking about even politically i'm talking about what about the regime of is there any advantage and disadvantage of capitalism is there any advantage and disadvantage of socialism even in that level and once again that's very hard to navigate because so far I think most people think of these as two opposite like social regime or constitution. Right. Um, yes, so, so that. Um, and weaknesses. I'm full of weaknesses. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like, what are my biggest weaknesses? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Okay, um, okay, let's just put it this way. I think, similarly, my witnesses, it's that I'm not American enough and I'm not Chinese enough. Mm. So I don't fit in both ways, to be honest. And that's sometimes really hard to... to it's sometimes it's really... Um, it just feels really lonely. Like yeah, when I yeah. was in China, right? I was considered more westernized right because mm-hmm. you want americanized or like just westernized i think because uh, some of my i don't know like the way i talk and things like that and even the way i think right um not very very chinese um i don't even know what that means but that's the that's the thing that i got right i'm not right, very right. chinese but then in the states apparently i'm not very american um so it's just like i i, I don't fit I never fit. Yeah. Right. And that, that feels lonely sometimes. I really can relate to that. Uh, me and my sister being biracial, uh, my dad's German mm-hmm. and um, my mom mm-hmm. is black and uh, mm-hmm. was black. And we, I think my sister had it a lot harder than I did because I think in general, especially in high school, girls are more cruel to other girls. Whereas for uh-huh. me, my qualifications for friend groups dealt with uh, how well I could play sports and how witty I was or, you know, something that had nothing to do with 
uh, fitting into a social group uh, based mm. on, you know, where you came from or who you were. Whereas my sister um, wasn't black enough for the black girls, wasn't white enough for the white girls. And most of her friends ended up being Laotian, uh, which we had a big mm. Laotian community um, where we grew up. Uh, so that, oh. hey, it ended up being great. Uh, she married a Laotian, so she ended up being okay. But um, yeah, but I, but I think that that all came from sort of not feeling at home in either place. That loneliness you talk about, I have experienced that. Um, I've even sp- experienced it creatively and intellectually before. So I, I yeah. really I really agree with you there, and and, and like that. Um, you've been so incredibly generous with your time and so honest and fun with your answers. I only have a few more questions and I'll get you out of here. You, you just talked about, just want to squeeze these in because you just talked about going to China and uh, they think you've been Westernized a little bit, your voice. Yeah. I dealt with the yeah. voice thing too. Had a lot of my friends tell me I sound quote unquote white. I have no idea what that means. How does a white person sound? How does a black person sound? All those are stereotypes. So uh, uh, do you ever see yourself permanently returning to China? And have your parents mm-hmm. ever come here to the U.S. to visit you? Oh, yes, uh, they have uh, several times during college and my graduation um, but, but not after COVID. So I haven't seen them in person for three years, almost three years. Oh, man. Yeah, because um, yeah, I, I, I came back to the States right before COVID. And with, I don't know if you know, but the, with the quarantine time still currently in, in China, I, I, I don't want to experience that. Um, of course not, yeah. Yeah. So, and my parents don't want to uh, want me to experience that. So it's been video chat mostly. Um, but um, I don't know. I I have no. I don't even know what I'm gonna do tomorrow. So I, I have no <laughs> like long term uh, plan to 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 like move. Or I don't know. Like it's I, I in a way I don't care as much. Yeah. Um where I live but one thing for sure is that I am very very interested in incorporating my experience and my understanding about the Chinese society both from a cultural point of view social point of view and kind of the constitution like kind of the kind of the political point of view um, so I am going to incorporate those into my writing at the very least. I um, love that. And I, I, to be honest, I am scared because that's, I've never seen anything like that. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if the current world... <laughs> Or the atmosphere, right, is ready for a non-binary, mm-hmm. right? That's a good word. A non-binary, nuanced angle. Yeah. So I am scared. Yeah. I look forward to it. And uh, what what did your 
What did your parents think of the U.S. when they came? And is there something significant, if you had to think of something off the top of your head, is there something significant about China or life in China that most mm. people here in the U.S. don't know or don't understand? Mm. Okay, so, so first, the first question, right? Yeah. yeah. So first part, my parents were afraid of guns. Uh. <laughs> like uh, a lot of the international students um, have experienced. So uh, my parents were afraid of the concept of, uh, of you know, gun permitted in public um in the states mm -hmm. and so that they were concerned more on the safety side of thing um yes yeah, so i think that's the biggest thing and the other part of the question to be honest i i think that I, I've seen and heard and experienced so many different levels of understanding about China, even in California. Mm -hmm. So uh, people can have very, very stereotypical and old understanding about China, maybe being a, a complete rural or like communist. You know, just it can be a very dramatically old and, and and weird concept about China. And I've experienced an increasingly uh, American who have very nuanced understanding about China, even politically. And that's something that I am so pleasantly surprised about. Yeah, that is cool. Um, yeah. I, I think, I, you know, I think, to be honest, I think with the increase of discussion on democratic socialism, and, um, you know, and seeing kind of the, <laughs> seeing kind of some of the negative things that can come out of uh, capitalism yep. or even, you know, capitalism, let's just say that, you know, overly consumerism or like, you know, like a wealth gap, that kind of thing. People, mm -hmm. especially younger people, uh are increasingly interested in learning more about different kinds of regions, right, uh, right. In, the, in the world. And I think that, yeah, and I think that it's just a also a good time to to have those discussion in a more nuanced way. But I think one thing that maybe stand out to me that I think most Americans don't know about China. <laughs> is that oh you know what is that i think i think in my experience and once again only to my experience because i i am well aware that i i belong in a i mean i am in a bubble mm -hmm. like i think most people i i need to i, I just need to stay say that because my friends are mostly international students right? right so i know that i come from you know like privilege upper mm -hmm. middle class i know that so i only can say this about 
I'm like, I just know that my perspective comes from that. Um, I think it's important to point out because I don't want to represent right mm. Chinese people. But I think that um, from what I experience, I think Chinese know much more about America than Americans think. <laughs> what what they know about america chinese i think a lot of them have very nuanced understanding about america um that i'm not seeing the same thing reversely and i think that and i think that that's interesting i don't know if it makes sense <laughs> maybe you should get together and make like a wiki page where we just put all the commonalities of each place in the wiki you can search anything you want to find really easily in just those two places and the commonalities, because I think our governments and our media machines sort of scare us away. Um, because I noticed that even with my my uncles and my or my uncle and my family in Germany, when they came to the States, the first thing they were scared of was that a building, the side of a building was going to explode randomly downtown because they'd watched all the diehard movies, you know, they, and they think that's like really uh, oh, America. And I'm like, no, this is Nashville. Nothing explodes here. And then sure enough, we had an explosion last year, but it was a small one. And uh, they, they called him the benevolent bomber because he told everybody in the neighborhood, Hey, uh, I'm going to kill myself. And I have a bomb in my RV and you have this, he had a countdown and you can read about this. This was like a Christmas or two ago. And he had a countdown mm. on a megaphone when the bomb was going. So everybody could leave. And so there were mm. no, there were, I think there were no deaths outside of himself. Um, so mm. that's, that's, that's the kind of city Nashville is. It's like you have a benevolent bomber, right? Like <laughs> just, uh, you, you, okay. not even looking to hurt anyone. So, um, but, but himself, uh, it's still foolish, still ridiculous. <laughs> But in general, yes, I find that's a fear of people who come from other places to the States that the guns are an yeah, issue and that safety. a building's going to explode yeah. randomly like in the movies. Interesting. I, I actually haven't heard that one, that being like the building is going to be. <laughs> but that comes from Hollywood movies, right? That, right. That's a right. Hollywood movie. Every movie yeah. has to have one building explode, right? Like, otherwise, what are we doing? <laughs> if it's a tentpole movie. Um, but uh, Siobhan, your insight is amazing. Maybe, you know, uh, if it were possible, Siobhan for president, because I, I love your I love your take on things. I love your, your uh, personality, your attitude, your temperament. All that stuff is awesome <laughs> and, and much needed in the public uh, discourse and dialogue. I'm really happily... Um, impressed and not surprised, but just impressed with, with your take on things. Can you tell everybody where they can find you on social media, maybe where they can find you on the internet, where they can see some or all of your work? Um, yeah, so I believe I only have one social media <laughs> presence in, in the English world. Yes. And it's, uh, it's Instagram. But I am not a heavy social media user, <laughs> uh, you know, introverts. Um, so, so I, I, yeah, so, but I, I am trying my best um, to open up <laughs> more and more. And, but yeah, so it's, it's my Instagram and it's Siobhan Love. 
So my name's Siobhan Love. That's my Instagram handle. I, I don't have Twitter. I don't have whatever is available in other social media. I don't know what. Snapchat, I don't have. Okay, so, but um, I, I do have a Weibo, and it's a it's a Chinese kind of Chinese Twitter kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, yep. and it's my name, Ding Suyun Shivan. Um, and what else? Oh, and my 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 films apart together, I think it's currently still. Uh, oh, it's on Amazon. Yes, it's on Amazon. Boom. Apart together, <laughs> it's on Amazon. Um, I think it just came out. A week ago, actually, wow. it was just a week ago. Yes, so it was uh, just added on Amazon, and uh, I believe there are film festivals, film festivals out there. Most like I think, but I don't know which ones that are playing like kind of globally because it's due in the festival cycle of things. Um, but oh yeah, and my music. Um, not that many though. It's on yeah. Spotify. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. It. Spotify. Just search for uh, Siobhan Lynn. That's Siobhan with two V's, by the way. So S H A V V O N L I N. And you can find her on Apple Music, Spotify, wherever you listen to music. The new single is "Enough for Love." EP forthcoming, but we don't know when. Uh, Apart together, beautiful film. Check it out on Amazon and uh, do follow her on Instagram. I like that you're kind of a mystery on Instagram. I think we need more mysteries. Uh, there's only so many girls you can see in a bikini before you just start to numb of the whole institution. Oh, so I like that. <laughs> I like that you keep it simple and keep it private. So that's a at Siobhan Love. And we will end on this. Your favorite philosopher is the Stoic uh, Epic t- uh, Titus. Uh, in what ways have his teachings guided your life? Oh yeah, it just uh, I, I, very simple. Uh, you know, to make it very simple is that focus more on the inner world and than the ex- external world. Like meaning that the joy that well, the happiness that we get from achieving goals like that are. Like, like external goals or um the the, the happiness that we get uh, inevitably as a human being from feeling like mm, after comparing with like i i just i just realized that comparison is it's one big source of uh, feeling good about ourselves right it's just feeling that oh i'm, I'm doing better than my peers that that kind of thing comes from the external world and it, it those are not stable mm. source of joy so basically it's really about just focus more on the inner world and know that achieving goals that are that are internal right just challenging myself uh, expanding my understanding about the world that kind of goals is might bring you a more stable source of joy <laughs> in life. So that's, yeah, that's basically it. Just inner world is more important than the external. Yeah. I love it. That's beautiful. What wonderful advice to end on as well for our creative community and our listeners. 
Yeah, especially creative people because it's, it's we're, 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 we're sensitive. We're, we're more sensitive, right? And uh, it's very easy to get lost in also in the vanity of of world. Exactly. The comparison, the vanity, all that stuff. Again, it, it's one of those yeah. things that sounds cliche, but it's so important. And I think the reason things become cliche is because they're very, very true. I think the king of the cliches is the golden rule, but the golden rule might be the most true thing on the planet. I still haven't found anything maybe that's more true than just treat mm-hmm. people the way you want to be treated. So with that, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, with that, I think it's a, a great place for us to end. Again, Siobhan, this has been a beautiful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I, I hope you have too. For those listeners yeah, out there. I have so much fun talking to you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it was a blast. And and for those listeners out there, you know where to find Siobhan. Please support her films, support her music, support her creative path as you would want your own uh, supported. And you can uh, <laughs> follow us and learn more about Bonsai at bonsai.film or search anywhere you listen to podcasts for the Make It Podcast. And until next time, everybody be safe and work on that inner self, not the external self, as Siobhan said. All right, Siobhan, <laughs> talk to you soon. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you soon. Be good. Hey, gang. One more thing before you go. I want to talk to you about Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies, and the creatives that make them, not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside, you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary, and underappreciated films from filmmakers like you worldwide. And the best part is that it's completely free. So join today at www.bonsai.film. It just takes a few seconds, and once you sign up, you'll get the very next newsletter. It's that simple. Go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights our bi-weekly newsletter and join a network of film creatives like yourself and don't worry we'll never sell your information or spam you with a bunch of nonsense emails just the bi-weekly film industry goodness you need and if you ever tire of indie insights we hope not but if you do simply unsubscribe no gimmicks no games so One more time, go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights for free. And thank you for listening.